Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 19. We pick up after the sinking of the Galahad and the debacle at Fitzroy and Bluff Cove. The British War Cabinet was plunged into an argument over information. New Brigade Commander Moore had panicked and sent a message that he'd lost 900 men. We know it was 51. The Argentinians naturally believed the 900 figure and also thought that the British attack had been stunted. It hadn't but London ironically gained as it lost. The Ministry of Defence faced the media and responded that the casualties had been heavy and this may delay an attack on Stanley. The War Cabinet was under extreme pressure to make the casualty list public, but refused. It would only be released after the end of the war, further confusing the Argentinian military, who wanted to believe that the English would not finally retake the Falklands. As Margaret Thatcher's ministers sweated under the glare of public opinion, it was fortunate for this government that the Falklands War was so brief. The graphic pictures reaching the British public had shocked the nation, one in particular of a sailor on a stretcher with a bloodied stump where his leg had been blown off. The Navy had always been against reporters being embedded amongst them. Now they conducted a mini told-you-so campaign. And yet, the pictures also helped the British public understand the difficulties of the campaign, and their support increased. It did not wane. However, the attempt at opening up another front for fire brigade instead of focusing on the main job at hand to take Stanley was a mistake. Apologists for the British Army point out that it could have been worse, which is rather Monty Python-esque, and no solace to the families of the 51 men whose lives were thrown away, nor the shoddy communication that bedeviled the British Falklands campaign. Brigadier Thompson's 3 Brigade was lining up to deal with Stanley and in the end, Fire Brigade's involvement slowed things down. However, the steady approach had brought the British to the eve of the war's climax. The bombing of the Sir Galahad set back their plans by 48 hours, and finally, on Friday, June 11th, they were ready to commence their assault once more. The political future of a vast area of the South Atlantic was going to be decided on the outcome of a series of battles on hills with innocuous-sounding names like Mount Longdon, Two Sisters, Tumbledown, Wireless Ridge, Mount William, and Sapper Hill. And waiting for the British were almost 9,000 Argentinians, although only 5,000 were classified as actual fighting troops. And these included infantrymen, artillery, armoured car crews, and commandos. There were six infantry units, five army and one marine battalion, facing the seven infantry units the British would bring forward to battle. The Argentinians had 45 field guns, including three 155mm and 42 105mm. They had at least 10,000 rounds of ammunition, whereas the British possessed only 30 105mm guns and had to rely on ammunition choppered in from San Carlos. But they also had their navy, just offshore, which could offer gunfire support at night. The problem was the navy was worried about an exocet which the Argentinians had based in the Falklands, and it was the navy who warned constantly about this weapon. If you stand back for a moment, these two forces appear well balanced. However, the Argentinians by now had lost both sea and air superiority, although there was an area around Port Stanley where Argentinian Air Force defence was still feared, particularly low level. Although a handful of serviceable Pukara ground attack aircraft were available, they would have virtually no effect on the coming battle. All the naval Eramachis and Tobermentos had been put out of action except for one Eramachi, but that had been sent to the mainland at the end of May. 
The Argentinians were scraping the aviation barrel at this stage with only two serviceable Chinooks, and these had also been sent back to the mainland. The Argentinians had also lost 36 aircraft, and the only sorties flown by early June were a few Canberra night raids and some Skyhawk and Dagger hit-and-run attacks. The Super Etendards had just fired their last airborne exocet, although the British didn't know that, nor did they know for sure if the Argentinians had one more land-based missile, despite the Navy's certainty. This was one of the main reasons that the Navy left the two aircraft carriers far out at sea, out of the way. Journalist Martin Middlebrook asked Vice Admiral Lombardo after the war whether a final fling of the Argentinian fleet was planned, and he said no. The Belgrano had been sunk, the Ventichinso de Mayo had no planes, two of the Type 42 destroyers were out of action, one had hit a rock, the other had engine trouble. The two other older American destroyers could only steam at 15 knots. Their best tanker, Punto Medanos, was also unserviceable. They only had three ships of any use, Drummond, Granville and Grico, all based near Puerto Belgrano. When Lombardo asked Admiral Anaya if these could be deployed to the Falklands, his request was denied. All of this was extremely demotivating for the Argentinian defenders of the Falklands. You can imagine sitting watching the powerful British force building up even after the mini-victory of the Galahad's destruction, fully aware that they were steaming around the Atlantic and aviating all over the Southern Ocean seemingly at will. This led to an inevitable change in the morale. The officers resented this virtual stage of siege without any support from the mainland. Nor was there any sign of a political solution. They had been abandoned, they thought. The Argentinian army was very angry about their navy and air force backing away. This led to something not fully reported at the time called the Dahe Mission. Brigadier General Américo Dahe was chief of staff to General Menendez. President Galtieri ordered Dahe to return to Buenos Aires with a first-hand report on Menendez's intentions. Menendez sensed a gap and was going to ask Galtieri for help. So Dahe flew out of Stanley during the night of the 9th of June on a naval Fokker F-28 with some wounded men. Dahe had a few operational suggestions, including a negotiated solution or a series of time-wasting initiatives. They wanted to concentrate all the remaining resources then to drop parachute troops behind the British on the hills and move their 5th Regiment from Port Howard on West Stanley to attack San Carlos. Menendez also wanted to move 8th Regiment from Fox Bay to the rear of the British at Goose Green. But Galtieri didn't want to endanger his dwindling fleet nor his handful of aircraft remaining. I was told to tell Menendez that he must be prepared to fight to the end even if we had to die, said Dahe. We were not to surrender. Then he was sent back to face the Falkland music on the 13th of June, but his plane couldn't land because the British were pounding the airfield with artillery that night. So he went back to the mainland to await further orders and would then watch the end of the war from there. Later, he would be placed under house arrest by the Junta, so he says he ended up a virtual prisoner of war anyway. Argentinian veterans of this war speak of three armies on the Falklands, or at least that's how the infantrymen regarded the situation. First was the army on the coast, then the army in the hills, and finally the men in the town. The latter were the administrators, hardly soldiers, more clerks than anything else. They had good food, hot water, and were relatively safe amongst the kelpers. The British weren't going to bombard them any time soon. The army of the coast were less fortunate. 
They were arraigned in foxholes and bunkers around the airport and beaches near Stanley. These were the men of the 3rd, 6th and 25th Regiments together with most of the artillery and Air Force combatants. And these men often visited Stanley and they were only slightly less better off than their clerks back in town. However, the army in the hills was another matter altogether. They were seven miles away from Stanley and most never visited any urban area from the moment they dropped on the Falklands in April 1982. Six weeks of sub-zero gale-force winds and being constantly exposed to the wild Falkland winter weather waiting for the British to pitch up had ground them down. By the time the British arrived, they would have spent twice the time of an average British soldier in these debilitating conditions. I've read so many reports from British officers of the war demeaning and insulting these Argentinian soldiers. But when you think about how they'd been left to rot by their own government, then continued fighting, you have to admire them. The 4th and 7th Regiments were going to bear the brunt of this ordeal, along with the 5th Marine Infantry Battalion. These men had spent the waiting period inside tents, trenches or shelters made of stone and peat. They were waterlogged, hungry and exhausted. They also found out what the British soldier had discovered, that digging into positions seemed easy. The surface layer of soil allowed rain to pass through, but a lower layer was full of clay and dammed the water. So this meant the bottom of all the trenches were flooded, and like the British, frostbite and trench foot became prevalent. One of the Anglo-Argentines who fought in these trenches was Alan Craig, a conscript of the 7th Regiment on Mount Longdon. It was a long walk to the showers down the hill, and the men were so weak from a lack of food, most didn't bother. Our equipment was good, he told Middlebrook, but we really didn't get the material to keep it clean. Alan Craig's FN rifle had rusted in the rain. They were each issued with three socks, three trousers and three shirts, and most wore all of these clothes at the same time and never washed them. They had thin blankets and mattresses, but they say their Israeli-designed anorak was a godsend. The worst part of this torture for the Argentinians was a lack of food. They drank something called mate cochito, which was a type of tea without milk or sugar, and cold soup made of dehydrated vegetables and meat. Then they had the same thing at night. But they were the sheep, said Craig. There was a group of our men who used to kill a sheep, cook it, and then sell it to us or swap it for a pack of cigarettes. There was also a corruption racket going on. The food stores would be brought out to the men on certain days, but instead of handing the food over, the suppliers would sell it. Every five days they'd also be issued with dry rations, but most had been opened before they arrived, and the sweets and other choice items had been stolen. Cigarettes were a different story. Craig's mother on the mainland sent him packets of cigarettes, but they went missing. These same syndicates would take the free packets supposedly for issue to the troops, then sell them. Some of the toughest soldiers were those from the slums of Buenos Aires. They were used to rough conditions, while the others, middle-class kids, suffered the most. Craig knew of three self-inflicted wound cases in Bravo Company. One shot his thumb off, another shot himself in his heel, and the third, they weren't sure what happened. All ended up going home. The 5th Marines were the only unit that had proper clothing and experience of mountain warfare. The 4th Regiment were men trained in the subtropical province of Corrientes and suffered a great deal. Ironically, the food situation improved just before the final battles when the Bahia Paraiso, a hospital ship, had brought in supplies. But then distribution was a problem. 
The approach of the British overland from distant San Carlos caused the Argentine command to reconsider their defensive position and strategy. The man responsible was Brigadier General Joffre, but Menendez, as commander-in-chief, would have the last word. Menendez told Joffre that the British would move towards Stanley in what he said would be a on-horse movement, which is a military term meaning they would go overland on either side of the ridge of high ground. Joffre took control of the 4th Regiment, which had been under Brigadier General Parada until then, and they swiveled around to face the land. Instead of facing the sea on Mount Challenger and Wall Mountain, they swung north and fortified Two Sisters and Mount Harriet. They could now face both sides of the high ground, and Joffre expected the British to aim at Mount Longdon, Two Sisters and Mount Harriet. Then they'd push south on the main track into Stanley, maybe on the same day. Of course, the British were planning exactly that assault. What he didn't know was how well the British could fight at night. The rest of the units, apart from the 4th Regiment, stayed where they were in a kind of hedgehog-style perimeter system. The problem was, 4th Regiment was not ideally suited to dealing with the attacks that were to follow. Its regimental commander was Lieutenant Colonel Diego Soria, and he was ordered to dig in, but most of his men didn't have spades. He also never received barbed wire he'd been promised for a defensive perimeter. Then the most reliably recorded clash before battle proper took place on June 6th, when a party of Argentine marine engineers came out to lay mines on the southern reaches of Two Sisters, protected by infantry of the 4th Regiment. There was thick mist and rain, so the Argentinians were confident of carrying out their mission undetected. But it was not to be. A British patrol from 45 Commando had been laid up at the location for several hours, and a sharp engagement took place. The British later said 15 enemy had died, but the number was actually four, three marines and an infantryman. The British commandos had to call on artillery support. The engagement was so sharp. The only British casualty was an officer shot in the finger. There is a humane sequel to this story. 59 Independent Commander Squadron Royal Engineers Sergeant Halkett allowed the Argentinians to collect their dead for burial at Two Sisters, and the Argentinians called him Uncle Sam and then spoke of him warmly. In the run-up to the start of the British attempt to take Stanley, at least 17 Argentinian soldiers were killed, according to veterans who have told their stories. Eight infantry, four artillerymen, and five others. They died in the repeated Harrier attacks and the naval bombardment. And so, the average Argentinian soldier was ready to fight, despite all this hardship I described. The veterans who survived explained later that they had laid many minefields and believed these would work well against any British attack but they also admit they were naive. The Stanley-based units had heard about how 12th Regiment had been outfought at Goose Green, and yet they still believed they had the better positions and could drive the British back. Even the conscripts believed they could outfight the professional British soldier. Just before the final battle, Brigadier General Menendez sent a special message to all troops, in which he said, amongst other things, My men! The hour of final battle has arrived. The adversary is getting ready to attack Puerto Argentino. That was Stanley. The enemy will be destroyed by the decisive action of each one at his command post. To arms! To battle! At the same time, the British officers were worried that they'd be laid up on the mountains staring at the enemy for weeks. In early June, the task facing two British brigades seemed daunting. While they thought the enemy comprised around 8,400 men, it was more like 5,000 fighting men, as I've said. The British looked down from Mount Kent, 
Mount Challenger, Mount Estancia, and were aware that they still had to seize the hill line that covered Stanley, Mounts Harriet, Longden, Two Sisters, Tumbledown, and Sapper Hill. By now, each one of these was covered with minefields, defended by infantry with machine guns and recoilless rifles, supported by 30 105mm and four 155mm guns with a large amount of ammunition. British journalists I've read described the Argentinians as poorly motivated, mostly conscripts, unsupported with officers who acted like they didn't care. This does not sit well with the Argentinian vets. They weren't receiving enough food, that was true. They were cold, wet, and some were sick, but they wanted to fight. While there's been some disinformation about the weapons used on either side, the British were already using Argentinian weapons when they could because of the heavier hitting power. The FN is far more powerful than the little burp guns the Barrow Troopers used, for example. They knew their equipment was NATO standard, in many cases the same equipment as the British. For a few days, the British hoped the Argentinians would surrender, believing their own propaganda about the cowardly Latin American cowering in their trenches. The British used their Spanish expert Bell to broadcast peace messages on the radio because the line to Stanley was down. He persistently told them in the name of decency, surrender. They didn't. You have to wonder at another gaping gap in British planning. Bell was apparently the only Spanish speaker available to the British force of 9,000 men and a few women. A fluent Spanish speaker with the Navy went home from Ascension Island when his superiors found he hadn't been vetted by intelligence. So they relied on just one man, Bell, to communicate with their enemy. Menendez heard Bell's broadcast appeals to surrender and ignored them. So it was then, on the morning of the 11th of June 1982, on hillsides along the entire range held by the British, three commando brigades commanding officers were briefing their men for battle. They had modelled the terrain using ponchos and string and tape. Each CO crouched down with his officers, outlining the mortar and artillery support, the timing and the phases. Surprise and absolute silence are vital, said Nick Vaux to his men of 42 commando. The men jumped up and down to check that nothing rattled or tinkled. If you find yourself in a minefield, remember you must go on, said Vaux. There would be no stopping to pick up the wounded. The men drank their final tea while the officers gazed through their binoculars at the alien country. At twilight, the men began to fall in, out of sight behind the summits of these mountains. The British artillery had been bombarding the enemy for several nights, along with the navy, and they started up once again. Four frigates sailed back and forth, and the Argentinian artillery fired back. Then, as it became extremely dark, they began shooting star shell, and in these moments the British were exposed and froze, thinking they'd be targeted by snipers. But nothing happened. They walked on the track of the man in front to try and avoid the mines. 42 Commando was on its way to Mount Harriet, a steep and lonely crest at the southern extreme of the hill line. The entire march was on open ground and there were delays. Some got lost. Eventually, late but unscathed, they were in a position about 100 yards of the summit of Mount Harriet when the Argentinians detected them in open fire. Captain Peter Babington's Kilo Company aimed at the enemy dug in behind rocks using 66mm and 84mm rockets, as well as machine guns, clearing the bunkers and foxholes with small arms fire and tossing grenades. The British shouted, Grenade! each time they lobbed one, 
The hillside was alive with shouts of 66 as the rockets fired, then grenade, and on it went. Enemy artillery was very accurate and hit Babington's men, wounding four. One NCO died storming a bunker, and there was hand-to-hand fighting, and Corporal Watts was shot in the heart. Corporal Newland was shot in both legs, and then he lay on his back, talking on the radio, directing the attack. Lima Company began to work around the face of the hill towards their second objective, and Kilo Company was taking prisoners, eventually 70 in all. The British managed to secure the summit of Mount Harriet, losing one man dead and half a dozen injured. That surprised Brigadier Thompson, who expected far more casualties in the drive for Harriet, calling it the most difficult of all the objectives. 45 Commando also crossed their start line late, heading for Morel Bridge, then onwards to Two Sisters. Also setting off for three para, heading to Mount Longdon. I'll return to that assault in the next podcast. First we deal with 45 Commando. X Company seized their first objective, but then they were pinned down by intense machine gun fire, along with mortars and recoilless rifles. They used their 66mm rockets to hit the Argentinian positions, then continued with the conventional fire and movement assault. Meanwhile, Yankee and Zulu began to claw their way up the two-mile-long Two Sisters Hill. It got its name from the two prominent summits, the westerly peak at just over 1,000 feet high and the easterly only slightly lower. The Argentinians, by the way, called it Dos Hermanas, a direct translation of Two Sisters. This had not been on the original list of Argentinian defences, but had been allocated to Lieutenant Colonel Diego Soria's 4th Regiment after the British landed at San Carlos, as you just heard. There were two companies protecting the hills, but from two different regiments. Charlie Company of 4th Regiment on the West Hill, with a stronger force of 170 men, and the other was Bravo Company of 6th Regiment on the East, with 120 men. Soria commanded both. The British attack took place in three phases. The first by one company carrying the heavy weapons, then it would protect the two other companies attacking from the north, heading towards the saddle between the two hills. Things didn't quite work out that way. The Royal Marine X-ray company that was supposed to start first had been delayed by having to drag their heavy weapons, and they arrived two hours late, so the three companies would have to assault simultaneously. Zulu stormed a strong point, yelling, Zulu, in a kind of historical irony, and seized it without loss, while Yankee Company lost two of the three commanders wounded, and engineer was also killed. Approaching well-defended enemy positions in the dark under heavy fire takes huge courage. Every sound is accentuated. It's like crawling through treacle, but 45 fought their way towards the summit inch by inch. The Argentinian resistance was hard to crack. They were fighting for everything they were worth, and eventually the British broke through here. Once the first line broke, the second and third lines fell as the British wore the enemy down. The Argentinians began to surrender in greater numbers after the initial fierce resistance. Some were lying in their sleeping bags and warily put up their hands as the commanders approached. Most of the Argentinian survivors, however, had already retreated to the southeast towards Tumbledown Mountain three miles away. Fewer than ten Argentinians had died. After two and a quarter hours of battle, 45 Commando had seized the summit of two sisters, although the Argentine artillery continued to shell them. Things on Mount Longdon were going to take far longer, eventually a ten-hour battle of attrition, as you'll hear next episode. But the most serious casualties of the battle were inflicted miles away from two sisters. The country-class destroyer Glamorgan 
was firing away with its guns, supporting 45 Commando, and at 2.35 a.m., Captain Mike Barrow ordered a ceasefire, and the ship began steaming away, when the men ashore noticed a streak of light rush from the land. It raced out to sea into the darkness. Eighteen miles away, the men of Glamorgan thought it was a 155mm round, until the navigating officer, Ian Inskip, said quietly, I think a missile is on the way. The captain turned the ship as chaff was fired. The Glamorgan was steaming at 24 knots when the Exocet missile plunged through its upper deck alongside the hangar and smashed into the galley. A huge ball of fire lit up the ocean as the men ashore and on the mountains stared in amazement. Then a second ball of fire could be seen as the ship's Wessex helicopter blew up, killing six of the nine men standing in the hangar. The Glamorgan shuddered. Captain Barrow reduced speed to ten knots. A fierce fire was burning. The men fought the blaze for nearly three hours, and eventually it was contained. Two of the Glamorgan's four turbines were damaged. Thirteen men had been killed. Many more were burned and wounded. However, the Glamorgan survived. As this was going on, three para were fighting the most costly land action of the war, which took place on Mount Longdon. What happened next is for episode 20. The music for this series is a composition by Kevin McLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase the visibility. Or if you'd like to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or you can direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.